are going to get started here in about 10 seconds. So I'm going to ask that you make your way to your seat at this time. We're going to get started in about 10, 15 seconds or so. All right, let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer. Father, it is great to be together. Thank you for this opportunity to come before you again and worship you. And thank you for the chance to spend time in prayer and in worship, to commune with you through the communion. And now, God, just guide us as we uh, come before you to learn from your word, speak to us through the scriptures, inspire us and call us uh, higher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm Joe Collins, and uh, we are in the middle of an ongoing series entitled Following Jesus, or Hashtag Jesus, and the idea is to just go where Jesus went as we read in the Gospel of Mark. And we've been doing this since the beginning of the year, and we're going to be doing this until we get through the book of Mark, and that may take some time, but that's why we have guest speakers every now and then, and we do some special services every now and then to break it up. But I really believe in the importance of knowing God's Word, of, of when we, when we uh, study it on a Sunday, when we, when we hear a sermon, that we've got to be grounded in the Word of God, and that we've got to teach it correctly, we've got to know it, and as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we've got to have a strong commitment to God's Word. It's vitally important to our lives, to our spiritual lives, and even to just our emotional and even physical well-being in a, in a lot of ways. And so that's why, for me, it's really important whenever I teach the Bible that I, I stay within a context. I, I like to just teach the passage as it's presented. Now, I'm not perfect. I'm human. I make mistakes. But I try to do my best, and I also trust that you will double-check what I say and what I, what I speak to up here this morning. And I know that you're going to do your best. And between us and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I really trust that God is going to speak to every one of us, myself included, uh, this morning. So uh, there was these three ministers, and uh, they, uh, they, they spent a day at an all-day revival, and it was one of these interdenominational revivals, and so there were lots of different faith traditions there. And afterwards, three of the, the main guys got together, and they, they sat down over a late dinner, a late meal, uh, and they began to talk about how did the, the revival go. And the first minister to speak was a, was a Methodist minister, and he said, man, i got to tell you, the revival... It was really a big success for us. We have four new members added to the Methodist church at the end of the revival. And the other two ministers said, well, that's, that's really great. I'm happy for you. And next, the Baptist minister spoke. And he said, well, you know, we, uh, we had a tremendous revival, a little bit better than you guys. Uh, we, we had six. You had four. We had six new people added to the Baptist church. And they talked about that. And then finally at the end, the Presbyterian minister said, well, you guys had six and they, you guys had four. That's a total of ten. That's funny because I think we had the best of, of, of both of you because in our revival, at the end result was we had ten of our worst members leave. <laughs> let's go to God. Let, let's uh, turn over to Mark chapter 2. Verse uh, 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, for those of you that have been here, you know we're, in a, we're going through Mark 
sort of uh, place by place, location by location. And if you're new here, you may, you may not understand where we are, but just a quick background. This is early in Jesus' ministry. He's spending his time mostly up in, uh, in Galilee. That's that on the map on the screen. That's that province in the north uh, on the top end of the map, specifically around the area of Capernaum. That's where Jesus spent probably two-thirds of his ministry time early on. Uh, his first two years of ministry were pretty much spent up there. And, uh, and so this is probably where this, place, where this situation took place. We don't know for sure because Mark doesn't actually give us a specific, specific time or location for this uh, uh, event. We don't know exactly when, but it's probably safe to say if we compare Mark to the other gospel writers that it was probably during the first two-thirds of his ministry up there somewhere in Capernaum. Now, the location is not really important in this story because Mark is not giving us a chronological account of where Jesus went at this point in his gospel. In fact, Mark chapter 2, pretty much the whole chapter and a little bit into chapter 3, what Mark is doing is he's giving us a theme. It's kind of thematic. He's giving us five different vignettes of, of interactions Jesus had with other people, specifically religious leaders, and the result of those interactions. And the result was that Jesus ended up in conflict. There was controversy between him and the mainline uh, Jewish community, the mainstream Jewish uh, leadership and, and community. So what we're looking at here, and for those of you that are new, we, we've already looked at the first two of the five. This is the third little uh, 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 scenario that Mark gives us that, that shows that Jesus was having conflicts with religious leaders. In the first scenario, that was at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, that's the story, if you may remember, a few weeks back where, where some men cut a hole in Peter's roof in his ceiling and they lowered a paralyzed man down and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And that was to an audience of Pharisees and scribes. And that really upset the audience because only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus, in essence, was saying, I'm God. And that really upset him. But, you know, to kind of silence them, to kind of to put a, a, a challenge out to them, he went ahead and healed the man of his paralysis. And that really... Uh, I think put the Pharisees and the scribes on, 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 on their heels a little bit like, whoa, he, you know, it seems like he's sinning. He's calling himself God, but boy, he, he's doing things that only God can do. And so there was a bit of a controversy there. And that was one of the reasons why they had a conflict with him, because he claimed to be God. One of the reasons why people today have a conflict with Jesus, because he claims to be God. Not one of many gods, but God himself. And so we've got to get okay if, as believers, or if you're interested in becoming a believer, you've got to be okay with the fact that Jesus makes some pretty big claims. And they're quite controversial, and we've got to, we've got to wrestle with that. We're going to have to accept that or reject that. If we reject it, now we have a problem, right? Now we're in conflict. The second situation that Jesus ran into was what we talked about last Sunday, and that was when Jesus called Levi a tax collector, a dirty, rotten tax collector, to be one of his followers. And if you want to catch up on the sermons, you can go to our website, seemingchurch.org. They're there under teaching audio sermons. You can get caught up uh, if, if you want to know more of all this. But, but in that situation, not only did he call Matthew, I mean, Levi to be one of his followers, but then he went to Levi's house and had dinner with him and all his other dirty, rotten tax collector friends. And that was something to the, to the, to the mainstream Jewish community, to the religious leaders in Judaism, in Judaism at the time, that was just so offensive because here's Jesus, supposed to be the Son of God, supposed to be this awesome guy, claiming to be God, 
rubbing elbows with sinners. Well, God wouldn't do that. We all know that, right? God doesn't do that. But yet there's Jesus hanging out with them. So that was the second conflict. Well, here is the third conflict that Mark wants us to know. And so you could almost look at these as, as here's the, the challenges that, that, that people had with Jesus. He claimed to be God. He hung out with, with uh, uh, tax collectors and sinners. And now they have an issue that he's not and his disciples are not fasting. And that does not seem to be the, on par with the other two issues. Like I can at least appreciate the first two conflicts. Hey, if somebody claimed to be the son of God, they're going to have to prove that to me too because that is a big deal if you claim to be that. And so there is some relevance there. There's some appreciation there that I have for the, the people that had a problem with that statement. I'm not saying I agree with them because Jesus went on to prove his, his deity. But I, I can understand their complaint. I can also understand the complaint about uh, rubbing elbows with sinners. Yeah, you know, if you're going to be this great Messiah, if you're going to be our leader, you know, you've got to be above reproach. And what are you doing hanging out with, with people of low company or friends in low places, as Garth Brooks would say? Right? So I can at least appreciate that. But here we are, and now some people are picking a fight over fasting. Now, is that really a big issue? Well, in our message today, we're going to dig in and we're going to try to uncover what's going on here. And I think you're going to find that this is one of the most challenging interactions that Jesus had with the mainstream Jewish community, mainstream Jewish thought at the time, and the religious leaders in the Jewish faith. You're going to find out here that this is, there's something behind the scenes here that's quite powerful and quite challenging. And hopefully, we'll be able to uh, apply it to our lives today. Okay, so let's talk about fasting for a minute, because it is the context. In the Old Testament, according to the Jewish faith, the Jewish tradition, actually the commands in the, in the Old Testament, not the tradition, uh, there was one fast day that was commanded by God, and it was on the Day of Atonement. That day, everyone was required to fast. The Day of Atonement was the day in which the high priest would sacrifice an animal that had been, been, been groomed for that purpose, and then its blood would be taken into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the temple where the presence of God resided. And it would be sprinkled on the altar there as a way of, uh, of asking for God's forgiveness for the sin of all the people. It was the, the most holy and most revered day of the year in the Jewish calendar. And God required that all people would fast because that was a time when you really... Uh, uh, showed your complete and total dependence on God by not eating for that day. So fasting was and still is very much a part of a believer's life. And generally, it has to do with times of hardship or trouble or difficulty. That's generally when people would fast because it was an opportunity for them to show their total and complete dependence on God. And in the old law, they were commanded to do it on one day, one day specifically. But they weren't re restricted from doing it any other day. That was a personal choice, a personal decision that you might make. Or maybe a community would agree, hey, we're going to fast here for a specific purpose. There's nothing wrong with fasting, nothing wrong then, nothing wrong in Jesus' day, and nothing wrong in our day with fasting. As a matter of fact, fasting is a part of any believer's life, even a follower of Christ. But again, it's generally associated with extra, with time of difficulty or hardship. It's a time to show, as I said before, your dependence 
on God. Okay? Now, by the time Jesus came along in the first century, the Pharisees, who were this, they were a sect of, of Jews who held themselves to a much higher and much stricter religious standard. They were very pious, very uh, uh, spiritually disciplined group of people. They weren't perfect, but by and large, when you, when, if you lived in that day, you would consider them the elite of the faith. They were the, they were the role models in Jesus' day of what true piety, true spiritual devotion looked like. Again, they weren't perfect, and there was lots of issues there. But on the whole, people really did, I think, respect the Pharisees' example. In our day and age, you know, I, I'm trying to think of, a, of an equivalent, and you could think of maybe the Amish. It's a little different because the Amish actually live in separated communities. The Pharisees didn't live separate in separate communities, but they did separate themselves from the general community at large. They did behave and act in a way that was just different than everyone else. And, and people appreciated that extreme example of devotion. So then, in many ways, the Pharisees were held up. They were the best of Judaism, the ideal. Now, you also have John's disciples. They're mentioned here. We've talked about John the Baptist before. I won't go into it. But, but at this point, he's in prison. And he was really the most revered man in Israel at the time. And Jesus sort of took over John's ministry, for lack of a better way to describe it. Because John had been removed by being sent in, by being taken into prison. And so John's disciples were part of this sort of revival movement that was going on in Judaism at the time. And so again, they were great examples of the best of us. The people that were there with John, that were part of John's ministry, hey, they're, they're the best of us. These are them, the Pharisees. This is, this is what we ought to be striving for. This is who we ought to be trying to emulate, what we ought to be like. Would be, I think, a fair way to understand the, the Pharisees and John's disciples and maybe how the general uh, Jewish community at the time viewed them. Again, they weren't perfect, but in general, there was a deep respect and re reverence for them. And, and these two groups of people were very influential during Jesus' life and in the first century. So that's a little bit about who these people are, about the concept of fasting. And, and now I want to talk more specific because it says that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees were fasting. And the question becomes, what were they fasting for? Well, by the time of the new uh, uh, of the first century, the Pharisee, the Jewish tradition was they had added a few extra fasts during the year. In fact, there were four more fasts that, that it was believed that all Jews should, should honor throughout the year in addition to the Day of Atonement. Now, they weren't commanded by God, but they were traditions that had developed throughout the centuries. And so most spiritually minded, faithful Jewish people would honor the fast, the Day of Atonement and these four other fasts. The Pharisees, because they were always going higher than everybody else, because they were always holding themselves to a more rigorous standard, they added two additional fasts every week. So they fasted not only on the Day of Atonement and the four fasts that, that the whole community did, but then every week they fasted on Monday and Thursday. Because, hey, they were the best of us. They really were trying to set themselves apart. So the question here is, well, what, was, what fast are we referring to in this conversation? Well, the truth is we actually don't know. But it's probable that the fast that we're talking about is one of those days of the week, Monday or Thursday. It's one of the regular fasts that the Pharisees would do. And everyone would know, oh, the Pharisees, it's Thursday, they're fasting, you know. And people would know that about them. John's disciples were probably fasting because their leader, John, was in prison. 
And again, fasting is a time where you show your dependence on God during a difficult time. And so they were fasting, pleading to God for John's deliverance. That's probably what was going on here. What's unique is that Jesus' disciples were not fasting. Now, Jesus, if he was the, the heir apparent to John's ministry, it would follow, well, if you want to be in the elite of Israel, if you want to be the best of us, then, then maybe you should look like the other elites, the other best of us, right? And that's kind of what's going on in this question. People were like, why are they fasting and why are you not? And there's a little bit of, a, of, a, of, a, of an attack going on here, a little bit of a question. Gee, well, you know, these guys are doing it and you're supposed to be awesome too. Why aren't you doing it? Little tiny bit of an accusation happening here. Before we get into that, I mean, in, in essence, what they were saying is, you know, why aren't you as devoted and your disciples as devoted like the Pharisees or John's disciples? Why aren't you at that same level? It was kind of an accusation. Before I get into that, though, I just want to pause for a minute because I do want to, you know, reiterate that fasting is not a bad thing. And that Jesus, just because in this situation his disciples didn't fast, doesn't mean that we shouldn't employ fasting as part of our spiritual discipline. Because it still is a relevant thing for us as believers today. Fasting is a time to show our total dependence on God. And when we're going through a difficult time, it's an appropriate thing to do as a follower of God is to spend time, take a day, and fast. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it, and there's actually many reasons to fast. What I want to point out is that Jesus is saying, is that Jesus apparently, by the example of his ministry and his disciples, is letting us know that there are also reasons not to fast. So it's okay to not fast. You don't have to feel bad or guilty in some way because someone else might be fasting and you're not. In fact, oftentimes in our church, we will call for a day of fasting. Maybe we want to fast for the poor around the world, or maybe we want to fast for special missions, and that's a good and awesome thing to do. But i got to tell you, I struggle because I don't always feel like fasting, and now i got to fast because everybody else is fasting. But what I'm learning here is it's actually okay that I may not feel the need to fast when someone else does, because it's a personal thing. It's a decision I make. Now, it's nothing wrong with us calling a group fast and, and people participating, but it's okay to not fast. So all of you that haven't eaten, feel free to eat. It's okay. Probably not a big deal. Obviously, you can tell I don't fast very much. But I want you to understand that it's okay to fast. It's also okay not to fast. There's nothing wrong with either one. Now, Jesus is going to explain in a minute why his disciples weren't fasting when the best of us were. Verse 19. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot. So long as they have him with them. For the time will come when the kingdom, when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. So Jesus tells a little, it's a parable, really. It's a little story. And he's explaining why his disciples aren't fasting. And so he goes back to Jewish marriage traditions. In the, in the classic Jewish version of marriage, uh, a man and a woman would be engaged. And by the way, they, for them, engagement was, was, a, was actually a commitment. There was actually a contract at that point. 
Joseph and Mary were actually engaged, and Joseph had to divorce her to end the engagement because they had a, they had a, a stronger expectation when somebody was engaged. There was actually the commitment was being considered, I mean, was being, uh, uh, began at that point. And later, the wedding would come, and that would be sort of the, the consummation of the commitment, and then, and then the two would be one. But, but they really, really held to this idea that there was this engagement, and this engagement would go for a period of time, and it was a commitment, and then there would be a wedding at the end of it. So when you have a bridegroom, this is someone who's engaged. So he's using this analogy from Jewish tradition. And in the tradition, as the tradition goes, a, a man and woman would get engaged. He would be the bridegroom. She would be the bride. And he would basically have some time to go get his house in order, prepare a place for her, get everything, all his ducks in a row, etc., move out of his parents' basement, get the job, all that kind of stuff. He'd get everything all set up, and then he would come and get the bride. And when the bridegroom showed up, this was a party. This was a celebration. This was exciting because there was a wedding about to happen. It was not a time to fast. So Jesus, if you can catch the analogy, is basically saying, look, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. And it, when, when the bridegroom's here, when, 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 when the, the guy you've been waiting for shows up, you don't fast at that point. It's not a time of mourning. It's a time to celebrate. It's a time to eat. And so that's why his disciples were not fasting when everybody else who was religious and spiritual and awesome and the best of us was. Why would they fast? I'm here. I'm with my disciples. Now, he does give a little hint that there's going to be a time when he won't be here, and then they would fast because that would be a difficult time. As I said, it's totally appropriate to fast when you're going through a difficult time. But it's also totally appropriate to celebrate when you're doing well, when things are going awesome. And I just want to pause for a minute because I think we, as Christians, struggle with being really, really happy. I know I do because I know I'm not the best perfect guy in the world. I have my problems, and I don't want to get ahead of myself, and I don't want to think I'm better, and so I, I'm reserved. But you know, when, when the bridegroom comes, there's no, there's no reservation. This is party time. We've all been to weddings. We all see wedding videos where the people are dancing, and it's utterly embarrassing and silly, right? You see us out there on the dance floor, and it's like, you know, you watch it later, and you go, what was I thinking, you know? And, 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 but, you know, that's the time to cut loose and have a good time. You know, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are totally free to celebrate our faith. It's okay to be happy. It's okay to enjoy ourselves. It's okay to dance a little bit when we have a song. Okay, I'm going to go there. It's okay to raise your hands when somebody's singing. Nothing wrong with showing your joy. I mean, we'll go to a concert and we'll act like a fool, but then we'll come to church and act all unhappy and miserable. It's okay to act the fool, to celebrate your faith, to enjoy it. Jesus said, why are my guys fat? Why would they fast? We're here. The party has started. So it's okay for us as Christians to enjoy our lives. Of course, we're going to have our ups and downs, and of course, we're going to need to go back to fasting every now and then, and there is that time. But honestly, most of the time, we should just be happy. We should just be celebrating. And it's okay to let that out. I have a friend of mine who was t uh, telling me 
uh, just recently that he was, uh, he was in college. This is back when he was in college. And, uh, and he, he went to the college counselor, and he was, he was struggling. And he was edgy, and he was uncomfortable. And the counselor looked at him and go, what is wrong with you? you know, he's like, man, I just got to get this over with. I'm, you know, I'm in school. I got to finish, and I got to get on with my life. And the counselor said, this is your life. <laughs> and sometimes we do that as Christians. It's like we gotta get, we're always trying to get somewhere better, which is a good thing. But, but we should be happy in the process. It's not miserable. I'm going to get better. I'm gonna, i got to get better. i got to get this over with. I'm not going to be happy until I go to heaven. No, who's going to want to follow you? Who's going to want to live that life? Certainly not the life Jesus asked his disciples to live. It's okay to celebrate. So devotion is enjoyable. That might be the mind change that I had when I got converted. Was, oh, everything that God said was fun, I used to think he said was bad. So now being a Christian is a miserable experience, right? But then I discovered, actually, no, devotion is actually fun. There's actually a lot of joy and celebration and happiness that comes with devotion. I can honestly say I'm more happier now than I was before I became a follower of Jesus. And I have more reasons to be happy, more things to celebrate. So let's stop for a second because, okay, Joe, that doesn't sound all that controversial, right, Jesus? Okay, so you guys aren't fasting because you haven't been arrested and thrown into jail like John. Okay, where's the controversy? Where's the conflict? What's the reason this became, Mark had to add this, is number three on the list of the five reasons why the religious people and mainstream Judaism rejected Jesus. Why is this so tragic? Why is this so uncomfortable? I don't think any of us are uncomfortable with it. I don't think at the time when Jesus gave this answer that they were all bothered by this answer it doesn't seem that controversial to me you know i have a, a friend a good friend who uh who we have a good relationship but every now and then in our relationship we'll have this great talk and whatever it is about me i can't help myself i will just say one thing too many to him and then the next thing i know we're not talking for a couple of weeks and we got to go back and process and talk it out I just can't help myself. I open my big mouth and I put my foot right in it. I have a tendency to just go a little too far. I'm going to put before you, Jesus didn't put his foot in his mouth. He didn't do anything by accident or foolishly. Actually, he did it on purpose. It's the next thing that Jesus says that rocks their world. And I honestly believe if we pause for a minute and appreciate this, it's going to rock your world too. Even if you're a believer today, it's going to bother you. It's going to be a bit shocking. And so let's talk about what was the next thing that Jesus said, because I believe that's where things took a right turn. That's where things went off, off the rails. Verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. I have to stop for a second because this came to my mind. There was a movie a long time ago, uh, 80s, maybe late 70s, called uh, Being There. Does anybody remember that movie with, with uh, the guy that played the Pink Panther? Peter Sellers. Uh, it was called Being There. And in the movie, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's slow. He's uh, mentally slow. And he's a gardener. And somehow, through the course of the movie, he becomes an advisor to the president, I think. 
And the funny thing about the movie, what makes it funny, it's kind of a comedy, but what's funny is because whenever they ask him a question, he'd be in like a, a big fancy dinner party with politicians and businessmen and stuff. And Peter Sellers, it, I recommend the movie, it's great, but he plays the part great. And uh, there he is in this thing, and somebody will come up to him and go, so, so, you know, what's the economy? What's the outlook on the economy? And, and Peter Sellers, because he was slow and he only knew gardening, he would say something like, well, in the spring, the flowers bloom. And the guy would go, oh, man, the economy's going to get better. Great. And they would, they would run off and go, man, this guy's such a great advisor. And they would make policies and make decisions based on, on that. Sometimes, I got to admit it, when I read some things Jesus says, it reminds me of that, like, what is he talking about? I'm not calling Jesus slow. Believe me, that's not what's happening here. Actually, we're slow, and we got to catch up to him. But he says things, sometimes you're like, what? A patch of unstruck cloth on an old garment? Otherwise, oh, okay, thanks, Jesus. Home ec. I mean, I learned that in home ec. Verse 22, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Yeah, I'm with you. What does that mean? And why does Mark put it as number three on the hit list of why everybody hated Jesus in mainstream Judaism? Why the Pharisees and, 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 and the other elites, the best of us, hated him. Why did this cause such a reaction? Well, I think we got to read a little bit between the lines. I think we got to think about the context of what's happening here. Jesus' disciples are not behaving like the disciples of the Pharisees or the disciples of John. They're acting differently. In fact, they're acting almost completely opposite of, of the, that group of people. And those group of people, as I said before, represented the best of Judaism. In, 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 in two short examples or two short stories, Jesus basically says, they're old, they're worn out, they can't handle my message. Now, you can understand why at the end of this, people had a problem with Jesus. What, what, what did you just say? <laughs> We've been doing this for thousands of years. We, we know the law. This is the law. This is Moses. This is the Ten Commandments. You're calling us old? You're saying we're outdated? We're worn out? How dare you? How dare you tell me that I got it wrong? How dare you say anything to me that I'm somehow not in with the new? You're the crazy one. You don't get to say that to me. I'm honoring the tradition. I'm sticking up for what I've always done. This is the way it's always been done, and this is the way it's going to continue to be done. How dare you call me an old worn-out garment and an old crusty wineskin that can't stretch and be flexible anymore? How dare you? Who do you think you are? See, I honestly think they got that message. That's why Mark puts it there. Jesus basically said to them, the Pharisees, the best of Judaism, John's followers, who he was friends with, the best of Judaism, they were the old. That was the old way. 
that had to do with the old customs and all your fasting has to do with all that old stuff that's actually worn out now. It wasn't bad. It served a purpose, but it's worn out. It did its job. And now I'm here and I'm bringing the new. I've got a new patch. I've got new garments. I've got new wine to offer. I've got a new message. I've got a new method. And you've got to let go of the old one if you want to be a part of it. That's a tough thing to say to a group of people who are so entrenched and so committed and have fought and even died over the centuries for their faith, for their belief, for their allegiance to the old way, to the law of Moses, to the teaching of the prophets. It was just unconscionable for Jesus to say something so unbelievably uh, uh, rude, offensive in their face. So we know this is why it's number three on Mark's list. He claimed to be the son of God. He hung out with sinners. And now he's telling everybody that Judaism is old and worn out and needs to be replaced. That's not an easy message to bring, especially to Jews in the first century. It's not an easy message to bring today. We're not talking about necessarily Jews. Most of the people we, we interact with are not Jewish people who are, are living the commitment of the Pharisees or John's disciples like they did in the first century. But we are talking to people who are living life the way they've always lived it. And for you and I to come to them and go, well, your way is worn out and it's old and tired now. Time to move on. They don't want to hear that. Because it's working. It's worked for me. And it's what I do. And, I'm, and it's, my, it's the way we've always done it. And it's the way I've been raised. Or it's the way I... How dare you judge me? Do you see how this is a problem even today? That the message of Jesus, even though it's 2,000 years old, is still the new message. It's still new in our day and age. It's still the new wine. It's still the new garments. And we, as followers of Jesus, are trying to bring this new wine, this new garment to people today. But they have a hard time because they like the old one. They want to hold on to it. When I was a kid, I had, I don't know if it was jeans or whatever. My mom's here, she could tell you. But I remember as a kid, you always got holes in your knees. And, and you know, they had those patches that you ironed on. Remember those? If anybody, I don't even know if they have those anymore. But you, I don't know what they were called, but you, you, know, you put them on the hole on your jeans and you ironed them on. And so you'd go to elementary school and everybody had you know, patches all over their, their, their clothes. But they never worked. They always peeled off. My wife makes kombucha. Do you know what this is? Nobody knows what kombucha is. I don't either. It's a weird, bizarre chemistry experiment. It's gross. It's this like fermented tea and this big loogie thing grows in the middle of it. And it's called a baby. And, and it like gets nasty, a scooby, but they call it babies. They call it babies too, a scoby. And it's just gross. And if you ever want to drink spoiled tea, then you drink kombucha. Supposed to be good for you. There you go. We have a, we have a defender. You got a whole, you got to defend kombucha. Go for it, sister. Amen. Good thing this isn't a religious issue. But sometimes you just got to appreciate that this is just gross. And uh, my wife loves it. My mom loves it. My sister. There's other people here that love it. It's supposed to be good for you, right? I've drank it. I try. But you know what's funny about kombucha is it's fermenting. So you cannot put kombucha in an old kombucha bottle because it explodes out the lid. 
just like new wine can't go in an old wineskin. Just like my cheesy iron-on patch would never stick to my old jeans. They're not compatible. And Jesus is saying that the, the, the Judaism as they understood it is not compatible any longer. And that is a hard thing to tell someone. But it's just as hard to tell someone the way you're living your life, whether they're religious or not, the way you're living your life is just not compatible with the way God wants you to live your life. That's a hard thing to say to people. It's a hard thing to hear. And it creates conflict. It created one with me until I could get over it. And it creates one between me and people that I'm trying to tell the same thing to. It creates conflict. And that's what's happening here. That's why Jesus is in conflict with mainstream Judaism. Because following him was a total transformation. Out with the old and in with the new. The old way isn't all bad. It's worn out and it's got to be replaced. And you have a way that you've been living your life. And if it's not in line with the way of Jesus, it's worn out. It's old. And it needs to be replaced. It's true for anyone coming to Jesus for the first time. And it's also true for those of us who have been following Jesus. Because we have a tendency to keep going back to the old things we do. And we got to be okay that Jesus wants something new. He wants to transform us, and he wants to replace the old with the new. Jesus said it like this in another encounter. Whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Jesus is calling for complete and total transformation. He's saying that requires a removal of what's old and a replacing with what's new. If you just do first the first step, if you just remove the old, the opportunity for worse things to happen is now available. Because when the old comes back, it comes back with friends. And you're worse off than you were at first. We're talking about something completely different. A total change from what was to what is. From what is old to what is new. They don't coexist. You get rid of one and you replace it with the other. You don't go halfway and just get rid of it and hope the best because the old's just going to come back worse. It's a complete and total change. So what does that look like? What does that look like in our day and age? To the Jews in Jesus' day, it looked like letting go of their religious traditions. Even things like fasting. For them, it went even beyond that. If you really want to know the truth, it, it required a whole walking away from their sacrificial system, the worship at the temple, and on and on and on the list goes. Things that these people held on to, defended with their lives, and, and did for, for eons before them, generations before them, 
it meant walk away. What does it mean for us? What does it look like for us? Well, a couple things came to my mind. One, I got to take my dependence on people or things and I got to replace it with dependence on God. Instead of trusting human wisdom, I put my trust in God's word. Instead of having confidence in my deeds, my effort, I've got to replace it with confidence in the grace of God. Instead of doing what I would do, here it is, write this down. This is the point of the whole sermon. Do what Jesus would do. I know that's cliche, but it's a great statement. That's what it looks like. Stop doing what I would normally do and start doing what Jesus would do. I could go on and on. I could talk about what that looks like in my life, but really what I want you to do is I want you to think about, well, what would that look like in your life? How would that change the way you parent? How would that change the way you interact with the opposite sex? How would that change the way you handle your budget? How would that change the way you speak to your wife or your husband? Do you get the point? If you, if you run it through that filter of the new, the Jesus way, you'll actually do things differently. It's a complete and total change. I'm going to close with this story because I think it's really powerful. <clears throat> 2008, this lady here, Charlene Cothran, was the editor of Venus Magazine. This was a magazine that was... Uh, focused on the needs of lesbian women. Charlene was a lesbian for 29 years. She was the editor of the magazine. She was an advocate for homosexuals, homosexual rights, all that kind of stuff. She went in parades, she protested, the whole nine yards. After 29 years, she renounced her homosexuality and became a Christian. This was in 2007. Today, she's still doing it. She's still ministering to people, coming out of that lifestyle, calling people out of that lifestyle, helping people understand that it's not consistent with the new way, that it's not compatible with the Jesus way. With love and kindness and all of her experience, that's what this, this woman does. She ministers to people who are caught in old wineskins, in old garments. That's what she does. Today, she started other magazines that, that are, uh, uh, you know, focused on Christian uh, 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 outcomes. And she said, and this is a quote from her, Christ did a 2 Corinthians 5-7 transformation in me. Now, I don't have the, the text up here, but I want you to listen to 2 Corinthians 5-7. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. That's what Jesus wants. What he wanted for the Pharisees in his day, and it's what he wants for you and I in our day. He wants us to let go of what no longer works, of what no longer is compatible with, the way of, with, with his message and with his methods. And he wants to change us completely, and replace with something better. That's what I want for my life. I hope it's what you want for your life. I hope it's what you want for your children's lives. 
I hope it's what you want for your family's lives, your neighbor's lives, Simi Valley's lot, people in Simi Valley's lives. I hope it's Simi Church. That's the kind of light, that's the kind of message, that's the kind of statement we'll make to people around us. And yeah, it will cause conflict. But the results, the results are worth it. The change is completely and totally worth it. She's endured quite a bit of controversy for her, her stance and her change and her statement. It didn't, didn't happen overnight. It really began with a conversation she had with a minister in 2003. And that minister stayed friends with her and just kept holding out the message of Jesus to her. And it wasn't until 2007 was she actually ready to make the change. But boy, did she make the change. And now she's helping others make the change. I'm going to close out. You know, I told that little joke about the ministers and, you know, the Methodist guy at the end who said he got rid of the 10 troublemakers. He only had it half right because there is a getting rid of the old. But what he didn't have was the new. And and I really want to call us to not go halfway. If we're going to do this Jesus thing, if we're going to if we're going to go his way, let's go all the way. Let's come completely out for Jesus. Let's not try to, I can't say that phrase, let's not try to half do it. Let's go all the way and let Jesus totally transform us. We're going to stand, I'll close with a prayer.